Welcome to Just Solutions, a podcast from Free Speech TV that features inspiring conversations with activists, community leaders and others working to make our world a better place. I'm Maeve Conran and on today's show, income inequality. It's on the rise and it's pervasive between black and white Americans. Right now, the wealth of a typical black family is around one-tenth that of a white family. The Souls of Poor Folk Audit by the Poor People's Campaign highlights the relationships between systemic racism, persistent poverty, the war economy and ecological devastation. Today's guest is Shaili Gupta-Barnes, Policy Director at the Kairos Centre and Poor People's Campaign. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. And we're going to talk about that audit, the title of which harks back to that seminal work back in 1903 by W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk. And that really laid out what was happening for uh, African-Americans. And of course, your report shows the intersection of systemic racism and poverty and so many other issues. So what exactly was the report? What was the audit and what did you find? Um, well, thank you, May, for first for having me on today. Um, the the Souls of Poor Folk was helped help the campaign when we were organizing and preparing for our launch in 20, 2018 on the 50th anniversary year of the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. It helped us to take a look at what had happened in those 50 years, and um, you know where where did we stand? Uh, you know, five decades after that that campaign on systemic racism on poverty, on militarism, on ecological devastation. Um, you know, where had these, uh, where had these injustices that were, that were central to the 1968 campaign, where did we, you know, wh- wh- what had happened across those in, in that time? And in many ways, it established a baseline from which now we can measure and determine where, how far we must go today. And so uh, part of how we um, articulated the questions and even identified the questions for that for that audit it was called we called it a moral audit of the nation 50 years after the 68 campaign was to connect with um you know hundreds of communities thousands of poor and low-income people across the country and and we you know there were multiple tours and and missions that that brought us into deep relationship with people who were facing these injustices every day and had been in some cases for years and the questions and circumstances we we found were helped uh, helped to inform you know the the issues that were discussed in that audit, as well as um, as well as the the demands and moral agenda of the campaign that also was released at the same time in two thousand eighteen. Well, back in 1964, Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty. But right now, uh, it seems, and certainly in in the past few decades, it seems that there's been a war on the poor instead and we can trace that through policies and also how poverty is discussed or not discussed you at the poor people's campaign in the Cairo center you frame poverty and budgets as a moral issue and yet we've seen a lot of moralizing happening around poverty but in a very different way where poverty itself is blamed on the poor and that 
takes attention away from the systemic issues, racism, the institutional issues, and also the policies that have led us to this point where we have one in seven or one in eight children living in poverty. So so take us through where poor people are right now, because you often use uh, the, the number 140 million Americans. Who are those 140 million Americans and what's their situation? Well, this is actually, you know, at the very center of this of, the, of our work and our campaign today is to reveal the true extent of of you know of the conditions facing you know the, the conditions of poverty, low wealth, uh, economic insecurity that are facing you know up to forty percent of the country. In fact, one hundred and forty million is the is the number we identified through the Souls of Poor Folk audit, which includes everybody who's living below. Um, below the poverty threshold of the supplemental poverty measure, which is an expanded definition of poverty that comes out from the from the U.S. government, um, you know, over the past ten years, but it also includes everyone who's living right above that threshold, um, which are technically kind of categorized as low income. But really, the threshold is too low uh, today to account for uh, contemporary costs of living, to account for the costs of health care, child care. You know any of the any of the basic things we need today that weren't actually part of um, the understanding of poverty when the poverty measure was first implemented by uh, President Johnson more than 50 years ago. And so we look at everyone who's living below that line, everyone who's living right above it, as we say, one emergency away from economic ruin. And this includes, um, you know, more than up to 60% of Black people in the country. That's about 26, 27 million Black people. It includes close to over 60% of Latino and Latina people in the country. This is, I think, around 38 million. It includes 60% uh, of Native and Indigenous people, 40% of Asian people, and one out of every three uh, white people in the country, or you know, numerically, that's the greatest um, uh, racial category in the country. It's 66 million uh, poor and low-income white people in the country. And so this is the face of the 140 million. It's actually you know, uh, more than half of our children, 39, 39 million children. So when we see, when we look at the full extent of poverty, low incomes, low wealth, and economic insecurity, we are facing a, um, a real systemic crisis that has its that has its roots in unjust laws, unjust policies that have made all of this worse over the past 40 years and more. Well, we are seeing at least an acknowledgement of poverty by the president, because this in and of itself to even acknowledge poverty and to have that as a as a, a part of, of the platform back in 2019, then candidate Biden discussed poverty and its eradication as part of his platform. Now, President Biden is making connections between systemic racism and poverty. This is groundbreaking albeit it's 2021. So in terms of what we've seen happen with the uh, American recovery campaign, and we'll get into how the COVID crisis has exacerbated everything, but are you heartened either by the rhetoric or any of the actions that we've seen thus far from the Biden administration? Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, for the first time in decades, we are having a national conversation on poverty. Poverty is on the national agenda. And this is, um, and, and there are policies that are being talked about that rather than blaming the poor for, for being poor, rather than blaming um, you know, these broad conditions on the failures of individual people, we're looking at systemic roots and causes. Something like you know, the, the expansion of the child tax credit, um, which would automatically uh, you know, give monthly payments into the accounts of poor and low-income people without, 
without testing requirements, without moralizing, uh, you know, whether people deserve or don't deserve this. But if you fall within a certain, you know, income range and are designated as, you know, uh, uh, requiring this, requiring this uh, assistance, you receive it. This is the kind of universal approach, a universal policy approach that we need right now. And, and, and this is a marked and significant change from the neoliberal kind of trickle down approach to anti-poverty policies we'd seen since uh, the 1970s, 1980s. Um, and so this is, a, this is a huge step forward and it is just an initial step. Many of the changes that we've seen through the, through the pandemic and with this new administration are temporary. Um, you know, temporary measures, they have not been made permanent. And so this is, you know, this is why the Poor People's Campaign um, is continuing to organize and push for not only the, you know, not only that these temporary measures be made permanent, but we fully address these issues by, by um, changing the poverty measure, by looking at the, the true extent of housing insecurity and the, you know, massive numbers of people who remain uninsured um, you know, throughout a public health crisis, the massive numbers of people who uh, do not have access to basic worker protections like paid leave, like living wages, like, um, you know, expanded unemployment insurance in an economy that we know uh, still does not have enough jobs. is 8 million jobs down from where we were before the pandemic. So um, there, you know, we are heartened by the step forward and we know how much more there is left to do. And, you know, that, that is our motivation to keep building this campaign and keep, um, you know, keep, uh, keep pushing to, to keep this 140 million at the center of the national conversation right now. Well, in terms of that uh, child tax credit, that expansion, the supplemental poverty measure, that is really being welcomed by folks like yourself, but also many others who say this could be the piece of policy that could make the biggest difference, particularly for childhood poverty. Mm. And it could particularly impact and benefit children of colour. And as you laid out the yes. statistics there, they're most impacted, you know, black children, Asian Americans, Native Americans as well, that this could really work but it needs to be permanent, as you're saying. And while at the same time we're seeing that, we're also seeing at least 25 Republican-controlled states are cutting the $300 weekly federal unemployment benefits. So on the one hand, you have some type of action happening at a federal level, but then you have certain states that are pulling the rug underneath, out from underneath some other folks who are struggling as well. So it, it's not a clear picture by any stretch. Well, what's clear in some ways is why we need something like, you know, as, as we're, you know, as has been called for this third reconstruction, this kind of massive expansion of democracy, of political rights and economic rights, because part of what enables um, these 24 states to to cut unemployment on the benefits right now before we've entered a real recovery while millions of people are still receiving, you know, still in dire need of them. Um, while we still don't have, uh, you know, $15 an hour minimum wage or, you know, at a national level or any kind of living wage, um, part of what enables that kind of, uh, that, you know, those cuts to happen is, uh, is these attacks on voting rights, is this massive expansion of voter suppression that has really grown over the past 10 years that, you know, relies on uh, keeping people away from the poll, you know, away from the polls, away from exercising their, their constitutional right to vote, um, to enact, to, to first, um, 
to first place people into office who then enact these kinds of policies. And so uh, what we're calling for right now is, you know, we're, we're in a moment that actually requires a, a broad expansion of political rights, a, an expansion of democracy so that we can ensure all of these economic rights that, that 140 people and actually millions more need right now, um, because included in some of those policies are uh, debt relief, right? Uh, you know, the, the security to, to, to have the kind of safe communities, safe schools that, that all of our children need, you know, the, the ability to breathe clean air and have clean water running in our faucets and all of these things that aren't exclusive to, to the needs of, you know, poor and low income people, but actually universal. And, and that's the kind of, you know, to get to that space, to get to that kind of society, to realize, you know, the nation we have yet to be, we need this third reconstruction. We need for massive movement behind a third reconstruction to build the political and moral resolve uh, to, to move us in this direction. I'm glad that you brought up the issue of voting rights because in addition to efforts to roll back uh, the federal unemployment benefits in certain states, we're also, as you said, seeing the introduction and the passage of bills that would restrict people's access to the ballot, whether it's mail-in ballot access or closing of polling places, or of course, the voter ID laws, which disproportionately impact Native Americans, people of colour and people living in poverty who don't have access to these required identifications that uh, these laws are are requiring. So when we see that happening, I think it's really important to, to draw the line between policies that are enacted at a state level and at a federal level, because I think very often we think of federal intervention is the only thing that can bring widespread relief, but we're seeing what's happening in states to undermine that federal relief. But also states have a huge role to play in their own uh, policy enactment when it comes to poverty eradication and elimination. Yes, this is true. And this relationship between the states and our federal government is, you know, is one that has been um, reinterpreted and reinvented time and time again, whether it was through uh, you know, and, and, and it's been tumultuous, um, th- those reinventions. And when, uh, what we're seeing right now, so we, we still need, you know, the federal government to establish a floor. We still need to establish this basic minimum of, of what it looks like to have, um, to, what it, what, to, to have secure, to, to secure our constitutional right to vote, right? This is, this, is a, this is a right that has been fought for and expanded through social movements that has been uh, fought for and secured with, with the blood of generations before us. And we have seen now this, this rollback through, um, you know, over the past decade um, uh, that, that is really undermining the gains of, the, of both the first and the second reconstructions, more, you know, more commonly known as the civil rights movement, that expanded those rights. And, and uh, what we're seeing is an historic chipping away and undermining that if, if these rights are not secured with federal intervention, with federal uh, legislation and protection at, at this time, this is a move that we may not recover from for another generation. Um, and so it is, it, this is, these attacks on democracy have not been, I think, fully appreciated, um, you know, by the, by the masses of people in this country who, who, you know, the, the way that systemic racism works is that it targets uh, people of color, especially black, Latino, native people of color, especially poor black, Latino, native people of color. And it, it prevents their full participation 
both in our democracy and our society and our economy. And through laws and policies and legislation um, that prevent their full participation, these broader attacks on poor people across all race, these broader attacks on democracy are implemented. And so the relationship between what's happening with voting rights now, with what ha what's what happening with these racist attacks on on the rights of uh, you know the right to vote and participate in our democracy of 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 people of color is something that we all must uh, take up seriously, and you know it, it is at the forefront of what the Poor People's Campaign has been organizing around since. Uh, since we were, you know, since we launched in 2018, and will continue until until this basic and sacred fund, you know, right right uh, is is secured. You're listening to Just Solutions, a podcast from Free Speech TV, featuring inspiring conversations with activists, community leaders, and others working to make our world a better place. Today, we're speaking with Shaili Gupta Barnes, Policy Director at the Poor People's Campaign. They're calling for a third reconstruction to set poverty eradication as a top US goal. What does poverty look like in America in 2021? Because very often we see the extreme end when we see pictures, people on the streets, homeless we don't see the children. We don't see what's happening in rural areas. We don't see people who maybe have a roof over their head, but who are making decisions as to whether to pay the utility bill or, or feed their kids. You know, what, what does poverty look like in 2021? Um, it, is, it is devastating, as it, as it always has been. It, is, um, it looks like working two and three and four jobs um, and still not being able to um, have your own home. It looks like, you know, working all of those jobs and still perhaps living out of your car with your children. Um, it looks like having your uh, utilities shut off, having not having access to water or electricity um, or, um, or heat in the winter. Um, it looks like, uh, you know, this deep uh, and, you know, it looks like, needing to rely on, um, on your school, on your public school to feed your children, and then wondering you know, what's gonna happen when school's out for, for various reasons. Um, it, is, it looks like uh, working in these low wage, um, frontline, you know, quote unquote, essential jobs without any of the essential protections that we've needed through this pandemic, whether it is healthcare, whether it is paid leave, whether it's family leave, whether it is, um, you know, living wages. Um, it looks like living in a state of constant uh, insecurity, whether that's economic or financial insecurity or, um, or emotional and, you know, health insecurity, housing insecurity. It means not knowing where your next meal is coming from and then having to decide, as you said, which which bills to pay and which bills to go further in debt on. Um, and, and the face of poverty today, you know, we know that women are disproportionately represented, women of color are disproportionately represented among, uh, among the poor in this country, among, you know, within, even though they're working in all of these, uh, you know, frontline low wage um, essential jobs, um, without any of these protections, taking on increased burdens of childcare and dependent care and all of the, you know, the expanded um, care responsibilities that have been, uh, that have been, you know, become more pressing through the pandemic. Um, and so, and it is also people of, you know, people who are living in every state in this country and every region and every kind of community in an urban, rural, rural, uh, suburban, um, at the border, in the interior, 
in, you know, in our coastal states, in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, across every, in the South, um, in the Midwest, at every region of the country, uh, we have poor and low-income people who are fighting every day to, uh, to, make, to make life, um, to meet their needs and to meet the needs of their families and loved ones. Well, Teresa is tuned in from Michigan, and she says that there is a Democratic governor in that state, but a Republican-dominated state legislature. And while there is a safety net, the Republicans are still trying to push their bigoted agenda. Teresa says we need to continue to work together to stop them and move the nation forward. You know, we've talked a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, that has exacerbated all of the existing inequities and has hit communities of colour, those frontline workers, the hardest. It's mm -hmm. also grown the wealth gap with the billionaires getting even richer. That's what's made that recession quite different. Yes. I know you've spoken a lot about that, that this is not the recession of, of your that we've had in the past. This is quite different, and particularly when it comes to that wealth gap. Yes, this is different. In most um, in most re recessions that we've seen, you know, including the 2007-2008 Great Recession, uh, the wealthy were also hit. It took months of you know it took months before they were they recovered their wealth through the through the Great Recession. And what we've seen in this pandemic recession is that the wealth of billionaires and you know the top echelons of our economy has actually grown um, by 1.3 1.4 trillion dollars at the same time that you know more than half a million people have died that millions of people are out of work at the same time that unemployment benefits are being cut at the same time that you know there's been um you know this deep and widespread hunger and housing insecurity uh, a very small number of very wealthy people have managed to increase their wealth by uh you know trillions of dollars and that is both, um, you know, that, that's one thing that makes this different. It also calls out the kinds of policies, you know, that have prioritized the wealthy and the top of our economy for far too long and why we need to move in the direction of finally prioritizing, you know, people who are poor, people who are low income, people who are actually holding up this economy, um, you know, uh, as we as we've said in this campaign before, the people who don't run the economy, but who make it run. These are the people who have to be the center of our policies now, the center of a real recovery through which, you know, we can actually heal and transform the country from here on out. Well, you've talked about the third reconstruction, uh, the second reconstruction being the civil rights movement, the first reconstruction coming after the uh, civil war. What would a third reconstruction look like? What exactly are you calling for as part of a third reconstruction? So uh, we had in, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a couple dozen, a few dozen lawmakers, you know, led by Representative Lee and Representative Jayapal, uh, both progressive leaders who have been, you know, longtime advocates against poverty, against war, against systemic racism and, and against climate crisis, they, um, they, they introduced along with a, you know, a representative group of, of lawmakers, uh, of a resolution, the third reconstruction resolution to fully address the crisis of poverty and low wages in the nation. And uh, this is part of a broader agenda to, to build, you know, a third reconstruction that can that takes up the injustices of this moment, as we've been talking about systemic racism, at its you know systemic racism and poverty at its very core, alongside the expansion of militarism and and these deep climate crises that always hit poor and frontline communities first and worst, and um, and what this would look like is first you know doing things like updating the poverty measure 
so we can actually get a true accounting of who is poor in this country and then implement anti-poverty policies to fully meet that need. It would mean having living wages and the right to form and join unions. It would mean universal uh, single-payer healthcare for all, as well as the expansion of Medicaid and you know, guaranteeing the, the rights to healthcare for everybody, guaranteeing the rights to housing and welfare and water and diverse public education for everybody. It would mean an expansion of our voting rights so we can save this democracy and, and thereby ensure that all of these rights are secured from this generation um, and to the next. It would mean a bold climate agenda, a jobs program, you know, redirecting our military spending and, um, you know, uh, demilitarizing our, uh, you know, our approach to foreign policy, demilitarizing our borders, demilitarizing policing, and moving resources that are in these systems of violence towards, you know, uh, towards systems that protect protect life and, and you know, so we can ensure um, that we can all thrive and not just survive in this country. Um, it would also include, of course, you know, fair taxation and being willing to invest the abundant resources that we have in this country and that can be raised towards meeting these fundamental and basic needs. Through this, through all of this, you know, what a third reconstruction is, while it centers, uh, while it centers the 140 million poor and low-income people in the country, what it does is lift the whole country up from the bottom. What we say is when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises. This is a direct counter to trickle down policies that wait for wealth to come down. As opposed to that, we are saying we must lift from the bottom. Well, Hector is uh, watching on Facebook saying a living wage is essential here in Corpus Christi as anywhere. Dan, who's watching on YouTube, says that we need to invest in working farms, communities, co-ops, yes. communes, this sort of collective idea of working together as opposed to leaving it to the, the billionaires. Dan also says that Bill Gates is buying up farmland. That's a whole other story. And uh, Dan, we will be talking about what's going on in rural America and on future shows. But what would you like people to take away, Shali, particularly people who maybe don't consider themselves as living in poverty, who maybe see this still as this is something that's happening to other people, albeit a significant amount of other people? Why is this something everybody needs to care about? Well, if we can, you know, if we look at how, um, if we look at what it does to our nation, when 40% of our 40% of people can't reach their full potential. It actually brings this whole country down. And without policies that, um, without a third reconstruction that, you know, so if, if we go back to the history of the first and second reconstruction, these were efforts to rebuild the nation, reinterpret the basic and founding creed to ensure the rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the, the right to enjoy the fruits of our own labor to everybody in this country. Rights are universal. And when some people don't have them, that means that none of us have them fully. And so the fact that, you know, this is an effort to um, reclaim and reinterpret uh, the founding creed of this nation for today's times. And this is something that, as we've been saying, you know, is to the benefit of everybody. It is not only the right thing to do, it will ensure that our children and our children's children and their children's children can live in the kind of the kind of world that we all that we all deserve. And uh, we will be launching a year-long organizing drive towards a massive march um, in, in Washington, D.C. In, in June of 2022. And we need everybody on board to fight for this. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation because the very fabric of our country is being torn apart. 
and none of us can uh, none of us um, can stand can you know can stand to the sidelines while that happens. This is a project that that we are all invested in, whether we are of the 140 million or or not. Um, and it is not you know we cannot leave this to the um, to, to the people who have benefited from from the past year and a half crisis, uh, you know, economic crisis, health crisis, political crisis. We can't leave it to the people who benefited from those crises to lead us out of this of this uh, condition we're facing today. It must be led by the people who have been most impacted because they will know the, the true extent that we can and must go to revive the heart and soul of this country. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a real joy to get to talk to you on Just Solutions. Thank you. Thank you. Shaili Gupta-Barnes, Policy Director at the Poor People's Campaign and the Kairos Centre. The Poor People's Campaign has just launched a year-long effort calling for a third reconstruction to deal with the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation and the denial of healthcare. Find out more at thirdreconstruction.org. That's the number 3rdreconstruction.org. And find out more about us at freespeech.org. There you can watch previous episodes of Just Solutions and subscribe to this podcast and never miss an episode. I'm Maeve Conran for Free Speech TV, Just Solutions.